You are listening to Forging Employee Experience. I'm Josh Dream, joined here with my co-host, Alexander Norin. What's happening? We doing all right? Josh, you going to make it? <laughs> I think we're doing great. I, mean, I am so excited. We're sitting here on the the eve of a, of a holiday weekend. Excited to be able to sit down here with Tayo Roxon as our guest today. Tayo, how are you? I'm brilliant. I, I, I love how conversational you two are. So this is fun. <laughs> this is going to be a fun podcast. Well, well, welcome to the conversation. Hopefully it doesn't disappoint. We'll see. <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 no. I'm sure it's going to be great. And I love the topic and I already love the vibe. So this is good. Appreciate awesome. It. Well, listeners, let me tell you a little bit about Tayo before we jump in. Tayo is a four times TEDx speaker. He is a consultant on diversity and inclusion, and he's on a mission to develop 3 billion global leaders. Very mm. lofty goals. He hosts an award-winning podcast called As Told by Nomads, which uh, you know recently just posted its 449th episode. He hasn't missed a week since 2014. Well, Tyo, you also have a book coming out very soon called Use Your Difference to Make a Difference, which I'm sure you're very excited about. Tell us a little bit more about you and the work that you do. Well, no, thank you both for that, that lovely introduction. And I describe myself as a walking contradiction. I'm essentially a cultural translator. And the reason I say I'm a walking contradiction as well as a cultural translator is because I'm a Nigerian who grew up in five countries and four continents, in addition to two military dictatorships uh, before he was 17. So a lot of my life has been living at the edge or in between intersections. You know, a lot of people look at me and see things and they think, you must be that way. And they, and they hear me talk or they hear my interest and like, oh, that's not what I expected. So a lot of, a lot of my experience has been, uh, you know, me figuring out my identity, especially as a kid. And in the process of doing that, I became um, someone that was able to help people create spaces for them to fully be themselves, whether it's in the workplace, or whether it's, you know, in, in schools or institutions, or whether it's within themselves, embrace who they are and own themselves. Um, hence the the mission statement, which is ultimately my book title, Use a Difference to Make a Difference. That's a, I, I love that. I mean, that is so powerful. Um, and, and honestly, one of the things that sticks out to me too is that the, the commitment and dedication you've had over the last few years to, to publish a podcast every week. Uh, for those that don't do podcasts, that is very difficult. That is not, that is not, I don't know that there's something that I have done consistently since 2014. So <laughs> you doing a podcast since then, that's, I mean, I'm, I'm mind blown. So, so, you know, kudos again for, for the, the tremendous success there in, in writing your book. Um, uh, we're, we're all very excited to, uh, to, to be able to, you know, take, take that home with us uh, when it launches and, and be able to just learn more about about what it means to really use your differences to make a difference. Uh, no, absolutely. Thank you. I, I mean, I, I think you two are, are just uh, downplaying something you've done consistently and you've woken up every day. I, that, that's, I, I don't know. Not many of you barely. Sometimes barely. But yes. Yeah. Uh, no, but I, I'm all open. I mean, I have um, a crazy story of, uh, of just how I even got to, to this particular career because, you know, um, when you, sort of figure out what it is that you want to do at a young age and you find yourself stifled in environments, you, you know, you don't think it's an option. So the path to becoming a diversity inclusion consultant and also essentially, you know, being a writer as well as a consultant and speaker um, has been one uh, that's uh, not conventional to say the least. <laughs> right. And, and it's been interesting too. Uh, we, we met you at the Work Human Conference and thank you so much again for joining us on an interview with Jason Lauritsen. But uh, listening to your, your journey in that interview was interesting. You were talking a little bit about uh, 
some challenges that you found, found trying to get a job or, or, or when yeah. like employers look at your name and that automatically is out because of maybe your, your background or where you're coming from. Do, do you even speak English? So tell us a little bit more in, in detail about that, that journey and why you're so passionate about diversity and inclusion. Well, yeah, no, I'm happy to. So I remember, you know, the first time I ever felt different was when I was 10 years old. So we had just transitioned from military rule to civilian rule. And my dad's job as a diplomat started to take us to different parts of the world. And the first time I truly felt different was me being 10 years old. And I was the skinny Nigerian kid with a thick Nigerian accent in a French speaking country in an American international school going through puberty. And, and, and oh, wow, that's a lot going on. <laughs> that's you a lot that, going you on. Anything. <laughs> <laughs> you know, yeah. And that's a lot going on for a 10 year old. And I, I was, you know, I went to this um, American international school where it was K2 through all uh, 12, but it was, um, you know, there were about maybe 120 people in the whole school. So it was very small. Everybody knew each other, but that meant that you stood out. <laughs> right. And so, you know, you know, I remember this, this one kid, it was a grade ahead of me, just came up to me and said, you know, your hair looks weird. Uh, why, you know, why does it curl up in a ball like that? And I, I remember running back home trying to, you know, talk to my mom about straightening my hair. And she had to explain to me what it meant to be black and the texture of my hair. And so those type of questions were, or me being almost ashamed to, to, to share like my food because I didn't, I didn't want them to say it smelled and things like that. And so you're dealing with all those things. Um, and in the process of doing that, I started to really discover who I was. I had to learn how to grow up pretty quickly uh, mm -hmm. because uh, you know, it can become pretty tiring and um, emotionally laboring if, if you're, if you have to put on so many personas, especially at that young of an age to fit in. And so through sports, I was able to find my identity and home um, and, 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 uh, and that led me to really start to dive into this this work that I do. What it is? What is it that? What is it about our world that allows us to to have all the tools to connect, yet we still sort of focus on the vision? And I, you know, I started to interview people, you know, just anecdotally and just ask questions. And um, as I became confident with who I was. Uh, my dad's job took us back to Nigeria. <laughs> and wow. when, yeah, and now I was now a um, a Nigerian with a pseudo whatever accent I have. It's not mm. quite American. It's like a mix of many things. But um, they they just identified it as an American accent. And um, and I was now this you know taller Nigerian kid who played uh, basketball as well as you know uh, what you know what we call football. But you know. I guess you all call soccer, but <laughs> I played all this, all the sports. And so I was now seen as this, like, wow, this guy is an American. I had never been to America at that point. This guy is an American. <laughs> and I was now not Nigerian enough, but it, it wasn't, <laughs> they, they weren't like putting me um, down. They were putting me on a pedestal. And I was like, wait, I just want to be one of you, you know, and mm -hmm. I went to boarding school and you're telling me that, you know, I'm ready, I'm ready on such a high level that, you know, you have to do you have to like watch what you say around me. I remember they will be talking about politics and they'll be whispering because they think I wouldn't understand that. And so it, it was that juxtaposition of not feeling enough to now feeling like, oh my goodness, I'm in my own country. I'm a hidden immigrant. <laughs> so uh, there was that. And then um, I went to boarding school and I, I, you know, I started, I really started writing. That was when I um, started writing because in boarding school, I started to really, you know, I had a lot of uh, moments to myself, uh, because I was just trying to figure out what it is that I could do in the world. And I had all these ideas, but no one seemed to understand what I was trying to articulate. Um, and so I just wrote in my book, I still have the book, and I started writing poetry. 
and, and, and um, essays and things like that. And then um, I eventually came to America when I was 17. And that's when I just, you know, sort of let loose. I joined every club. I, I ran two nonprofits that were focused on sub-Saharan Africa. And I started to really just speak out more and more. But by the time I was ready to graduate, I thought I knew what I was going to do. I thought I was going to follow the footsteps of my dad and be, you know, a diplomat or something like that. And um, I had over 85 plus job rejections. Um, and it all was for a myriad of reasons. Uh, you're not a citizen. You don't sponsor a visa. Um, you, you don't have enough experience for what you say you want to do. And so I just, you know, took a job that that had previously hired me as an intern and said, hey, just whatever job you need, I'll do it. Um, and then it was a sales job, because I, but I thought it was going to be a marketing job, social media job. And um, I was there for a little bit. And, um, you know, I had a near-death experience, which sort of woke me up. Uh, and that, uh, that was what was the catalyst for me to move to New York City. You know, it was a car accident that I almost lost my life in. And when I um, came out of that accident unscathed, I was like, okay, my car's totaled, two other cars are hit. There's a reason I'm here. I'm going to start being more intentional. So I started to publish my, my writings more. I launched my blog. Um, and then I moved to New York City to study. Because if you're not a citizen, you, can, you either get married, you go to school, or you work. Those are the three ways you can stay here. <laughs> Those are the three ways you can stay here legally. So, um, so that's what I did. I, I chose the school option. And while I was doing that, I essentially made New York City my campus. And I would... Um, spread some of my writings and then um, interview people with my podcast and that podcast essentially started to position me as someone with in interesting ideas on some of the world's problems you know you know with diversity and inclusion and um, out of that someone heard me speak and then they asked me to come speak at a conference um and, and one thing led to another and it led to consulting and writing the book so and, and coming yeah. from a position of like you know it because you've experienced mm -hmm. it I, I mean that alone would be the reason why I would listen to your keynote is because right. you've been there. So, so tell us how, how does this translate? How do you take your experiences and you start to help people in the workplace and you help leaders focus on diversity and inclusion? What, what does that look like in practice? So, you know, it's interesting what you two say, because a lot of times, a lot of people probably come to you and they come to everyone and say, what is it? What is it that I want to do? What are, what are my unique skill sets? And many times, I think Oprah said this, the clues are always there. And so when I was at that moment, I had the near-death experience and I woke up and I came out of it um, unscathed. I remember my fear prior to that was failure. And then after that, it was not achieving my potential. Because once you start to see your life flash between your eyes and you realize you haven't done anything that you said you wanted to do, um, you have this sense of urgency. And what I just started off was just, hey, what is the problem I want to solve? What has my experience been so far? And why am I the one that can uniquely fit into that problem? And I just looked within myself. I've had identity crisis that I turned into a gift. And the world is in an identity crisis. <laughs> and, and it doesn't know what it exactly wants to be. You know, it says one thing, but doesn't act accordingly. Many organizations and institutions, whether it's movies not showing representative people, whether it's schools not having inclusive curriculums that are actually um, you know, emblematic of this, the student body it serves, whether it's workplaces, you know, engaging in, in uh, you know, unconscious bias behavior or behaviors or, or things of the sort where it sort of alienates people on purpose or, you know, unknowingly. And I just looked at that from a, from a macro level and we can, we can, we can go to governments as well. And I started to see, well, what if I was able to start to identify some of these people that need the solutions. And it came down to me to HR, 
um, CEOs, marketing officials initially. I needed to have a point of entry. And so I took what I had I'd, I'd learned and written about and basically extrapolated that into um, workplaces, environments. I said, you know, back to stats, a lot of um, workplaces want to make sure that they retain their workforce and they have a, a highly productive um, employee base. So if you want to do that, what if I told you that you could attract people that are excited by work, but also cultivate a culture that allows people to, to fully be themselves? That to me would translate into a highly productive and um, you know, long staying uh, workplace. And so I reached out to a bunch of people and they said, sure, we'll have you to workshop. And this was unpaid initially. And so my goal with this was to get testimonials. I was just like, I'll just get the testimonials. I have maybe video footage of me speaking and I'll use that as leverage to be able to get to the next opportunity. And I also just wanted to see if I could do it. <laughs> right. um, yeah. And so based on the feedback and based on all those things, I started to see, you know, a lot of workplaces, honestly, uh, don't live out the values that they have. You know, many times in, it's the same thing that happened to me where I was initially given a, a, a social media job and then they switched my job without any orientation. And so a lot of times people will, will do the work and they'll do everything you need to do to get you there. But then when they have you there, they forget to include you in every decision-making process. You're like mm. forgotten. There. And then uh, you have employees who need to pay rent so they won't leave. So they stay there, but they're not there because they want to. And then that cycle continues. But when, 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 when people ask them about the job, they don't have the enthusiasm and that doesn't uh, help your employer brand. And so that damages it more and more. And that's something you can't control. And so I just started to look at all these patterns and, um, it, and, and it, it became clear to me that I needed to sort of create workshops, trainings and things like that and identify those problems. Uh, with schools, I came to America for the first time when I was 17 and not many people in my area, I guess, where I went to school in Virginia, knew of Nigeria or the fact that Africa was a continent. You know, I, you know, people used to sing Lion King songs to me. and all oh, these terrible. Right, right. <laughs> and, to, and to me, that, that was more emblematic of like what was being taught in school and how they weren't humanizing uh, people because everybody was surprised that I spoke English or like I could do basic human activities. Mm. <laughs> um, mm. And so that to me was uh, emblematic of what's being taught in school and how we humanize people. I think sometimes we teach history from an ethnocentric point of view. We sort of sometimes wash away a lot of uh, what's being taught. Like, you know, Christopher Columbus coming to America, for example, is, is glorified in such a way where we just somehow ignore what happened. <laughs> no, you know how it actually happened and it's like a columbus day and it's not to say that obviously you know people can celebrate whatever holidays they want to but i am i'm a proponent of painting the whole picture so people can make a decision based on that yeah um, yeah and I, I love that idea of painting the whole picture because uh that's what we need to start doing more in the workplace you know on this podcast we talk a lot about engagement and you, you were right. touching on this earlier yeah. is about you know like diversity and inclusion is a huge part of that through our onboarding process, you know, if someone doesn't match our same ethnicity, then, uh, you know, they're different, which doesn't mean that they're not a good fit. It just means different. And, and so I think a lot of times we get stuck in this mentality. Yeah. Yeah. How do we engage people in that? You know, the, the more diverse we get, the more engaged people are going to be. Absolutely. And, and did you, both of you were, you know, you got that. What ethnocentrism is essentially when you, you sort of look at other cultures through your lens, right? Mm -hmm. um, uh, and, and then through your own standards and that's just 
you know, the, the um, assumption there is that you feel like yours is more superior. So um, the best way that I found is, is a lot of what I talk about in the book. I found there's three ways is make sure you educate, you don't perpetuate, and instead you communicate. And I'll break these down. So under the education piece, it's about educating yourself on your values and your biases. A lot of people um, pretend like they don't have biases, but we all do. It's really what makes us human. Right. Um, but we need to understand where our blind spots are, examine our blind spots so we can connect the dots, essentially. And once we have that, you do have an idea of where to work from or where you're already starting with, like how you already see the world. And then your values, many people, if you ask anyone, catch them off guard and ask them, hey, what, what do you value? They'll, most of them will tell you great values, integrity, honor, you know, compassion, all that. But not many people actually live out those values and not many people actually are making those values. Um, right. Yeah, yeah, because we all like to think of ourselves as, a, as good people, but I, I, people are not intentionally doing this. And so I always ask people to educate themselves on those blind spots, whether it's the biases and the values for within themselves. And the other portions of, uh, of education is education of the environment. So how many people know the mayor of their, of their city or their the governor or the house of reps and all that kind of stuff. It's very important to understand the people that you live or have an idea of the people you live around or the people to make decisions in the areas you live because you're, you're then able to start to humanize and to start to see other, you know, how the same set of laws can affect different sorts of people. So if it's in a workplace, put people around you, who's in the marketing department, who's in the IT department, who's, you know, what, what, what is the, what are the recruiting efforts? How many schools do people go to, to get people? Is there just one area? Is the language in the, in, 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 in your um, job board sort of, you know, snobbish? Is it alienate other people? These are things that as you start to educate yourself on who you are in your environment, you start to notice more and more because you start to be able to see who's, uh, what the insider and outsider dynamics are. And then the next piece is the don't perpetuate. Uh, and I think this is in two, two ways where a lot of times we perpetuate story, stories. Humans like fantastic stories, right? The idea of me being someone that slept with a lion and lived in the jungle is, is, more, is more fantastic than me just coming from another country. Like, oh, no, I met to be, this guy. To be fair, that would be really cool. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. exactly. That would be a cool story, but yes, yeah, point, point <laughs> well made. Yeah. Exactly. So how married to stereotypes and, and limited stories are we? We talked earlier about telling full stories. Uh, you know, people have a perception of a, a particular culture. Even here, I've noticed in America, Northeast, South, you're from the South, you must not be intelligent, you must be slow, you must only like, you know, all these things. How are we willing to challenge our own the stereotypes that we perpetuate and those mm -hmm. narratives that we perpetuate? Because those things are dangerous. Even if we think we're joking, someone can watch us and think that it's true and then they go spread that and then it becomes this cycle. Right. So just an acknowledgement of your circle of influence and understand that. And the other aspect of perpetuation is spreading false news, right? We live in a time where there's a lot of fake news going on on all sides, you know, liberal, conservatives. But the, the idea is many people share things that already confirm their beliefs <laughs> and mm -hmm. live in an echo chamber and there, there are stats out there to show that people share based on the headline. They're not actually reading the, the articles, you know? So we have to be better fact checkers <laughs> uh, in, in terms of that. That also helps to humanize it. Humanize it. And then the last part is um, instead communicate. We can't live in a time where we, we don't say things um, because we're afraid. And I find that today's world, we are in this balance. We are in this extreme world where it's, um, 
you're either a troll or you're politically correct. And then there's no nuance. <laughs> right. Right. And, and I think it's so ironic because in a world of nuance, we're governed by binary systems. And I'm like, hey, we need to break down some of these binary systems and be able to have these conversations. One of my favorite things to do is to um, study improv, right? Improv has this policy called yes and. Mm-hmm. And it, it basically, no matter what situation is presented to you, 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 you build on it. You don't negate it. You don't belittle it. You just build on it. So if someone says something to you, you find a way to open that dialogue. And a lot of this instead communicate involves less ego, more, more um, openness and at least more opportunities. And so you have to be able to uh, get need, get rid of your need to be right and understand that they're equally as good alternatives that exist to your point of view. And then if you're, if you do make a mistake, it's okay to own up to it and then say, okay, fine. I didn't see that. I think we live in this world where sometimes we say, do unto this as you want to, as you want to be done to you. But sometimes, no, not sometimes, a lot of times we need to do unto others as they want to be done, um, you know, because just because it's the way you did things doesn't mean that another person will appreciate that. And so hmm. if we adopt those three things, which I, um, uh, I go more in depth in the book, but um, it's educate, don't perpetuate, instead communicate. I think we will be at a better place, uh, honestly, in institutions. Yes. And I agree with you completely. <laughs> <laughs> well, and and that, that is a fantastic framework. Um, and thank and thank excited to, to be able to dive into that deeper in the book. I, I'd like to, if we could take a step back a little bit, you know, I, um, as, we, as we build this case for diversity and inclusion, right? Because let, let's be honest, if we're going to be, we have to be completely realistic with ourselves as you, and, and I'm sure this was part of your journey as a consultant as well to say, um, we, we need to build a case for the need for diversity and inclusion. I think, I think we, in this conversation, um, if, if nothing else, feel that it's the right thing to do, um, altruistically, that's the right thing to do. But could we talk a little bit about, so on, on the more nitty gritty level, maybe the, the, the less, uh, the less mm, more, more concretely, how does, for our listeners out there, how does having a diverse and inclusive workplace, how does that make your workplace better? Well, first of all, I mean, we've all heard the cliches, but this is so true. I'm not even going to do the, uh, the productive thing, but it actually forces you to look at things from other perspectives. And, and that's the number one thing. We've seen so many mistakes in the past few years. Um, H&M put in, you know, coolest monkey in the jungle on a, on a young black kid. Um, a lot of these uh, commercials that sort of just do these things that you think, how on earth did that happen? Or how did that become right. a marketing campaign? Right. That by the way, <laughs> is, is, is one of the most tangible things that you can see where decisions that are being made on how your brand is being defined as a company, um, it, it, it's, it's right there, right? So it allows you right. to maybe check those things at the earliest stages and also get different perspectives. Expand your market. Imagine if you have different perspectives and different people from different backgrounds and they give you insights onto what works for them and how they could open up a marketplace, a marketplace in their area because of, you know, something that they, they, they maybe media jack or maybe a culture that they're aware of. And they say, Hey, I've noticed that, you know, I came here, I came from here. This is very popular for us. We could possibly try this. So it helps to, to just get that, um, you know, diverse diversity there. But then the employer brand is so important. Employer brand, a lot of companies neglect this is it's how your company is perceived. You know, when you right. go to school and that company right. comes there, uh, you know, what's going to make a student want, want to come work for you. If they've heard, 
you know, like Harvard has a great employee brand, for example. Everybody's all oh, just Harvard, just Harvard. You know, everybody's like, <laughs> that, that's what it is. That's all people say. It's Harvard, it's this, or it's Ivy League, any of the Ivy League. You know, those um, have worked hard to, to tell a story that only the elite of the elite go there or the best of the best go there. It, it's, mm-hmm. and, and that comes from a lot of the work that you do and the stories you tell and how you make people feel because those are the people that will go on to tell those stories about yourself. You're not always in control of the narrative about your company if you're a startup, if you're anything. I mean, Uber was a great example of that. Fast growing, high company, um, high growth company. But you know, then there were also a lot of competing stories at the same time when Travis was the CEO uh, about the, the just misconducts that were going on in the office. And that, you know, for a while it sort of brought the company down and now they're back. I mean, I don't know that they're going anywhere. I, I love it because we think a lot, I think, in terms of as we want our businesses to grow and succeed, we have to innovate. And if you don't have, you know, just summarizing what you just said, if you don't have that diversity, uh, that thought diversity, that, that experience, that background diversity, then you have you don't have a pool of a new ideas to pull from. You have no idea. I right. mean, and, right. yeah, sorry, go ahead. You're, you're, not, you're willing to be challenged rather. Yeah, go right. yeah. So, and then, and so then talk to me a little about the, the inclusion piece. Cause we, we always say diversity, inclusion, diversity, inclusion, but diversity and inclusion are, are, are pretty, uh, in, maybe not independent, but, but they're discrete ideas, right? I mean, they're separate yeah. ideas. Yeah. Um, you can have a diverse, <laughs> you can hire, check the boxes and have a diverse workforce, but if it's not inclusive, What's the point, right? Exactly. So, yeah, I mean, it's the, the, this, like, the analogy is like getting, you know, invited to the dance and getting asked to, da- to actually dance, right? right. Or, or right. a fruit versus a seed. You know, you need the seed to grow. So the, with inclusion is the check in the box is very evident when you just have a diverse workforce and no one's actually included. What activities can you do? Um, you have all, um, all hands meeting. Do you have ERGs, employee resource groups? Do you have a diversity council? Do you, you know, do you have leaders who are audibly, audibly and uh, stating what the goals are? Are you tying your, your diversity goals, to your business goals? Are you encouraging referrals from, from different, different bases? Are you hosting events or sponsoring things? Are you partnering with different parts? I mean, these are ways to include people and you, how you include them is you leverage to say, Hey, this is our goal for the year. We know that we have room for growth in such and such area. We've also done a check of the company. I want to know, you know, please, we want to partner with you all to be able to diverse, you know, get into these bases and establish relationships with this, uh, you know, with this demographic. Anyone, you know, willing to do, we can partner with the ERG for this. We can work on themed months for that. Um, even something as simple as potlucks, like every Friday, having people from different backgrounds bring something from their culture to use that as an, exp- as an opportunity to, tell them about where they're from and why it's important to them. All those small humanizing moments, they play a big role into humanizing. Some people, I've, I've had companies do, um, you know, intramural events, you know, <laughs> you know, intramural events where it's, oh, I'm on the softball team, I'm on the basketball team. Those little moments outside of the office matter, volunteering. But some companies you find will say that that takes away from the work and it doesn't allow me to focus on what I'm supposed to do. But those are the things that, that establish bonds that, that, that will help with ultimately um, enthusiasm for the company. So yeah. it, it, it sounds simple to say, but it's, it's hardly implemented. 
Well, and, and it sounds like there's a huge level of intentionality, right? Like, of course, I can sit here and say, oh, yeah, no, I, I will absolutely make sure that, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm aware, you know, you can even be aware of your, uh, you try to become, you know, talking to that education piece, you know, being, being trying to make yourself aware of your uh, unconscious bias and, and, and all of that great work, which is, I think, one. Uh, but then, you know, like you, like in all the examples you gave, it's this element of being intentional about it, having a plan yeah. to make sure that happens. Because if you don't, it, you know, my, my guess, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, but it sounds like you will just lapse back into whatever is easiest and whatever is most familiar, which yeah. will lead to that, uh, that stagnation of, of thought diversity. You know? Yeah, yeah. I, I, you're so spot on. You have to be intentional about it. And I, you know, sometimes I actually challenge people and I'm like, wait, then there's some people tell me they know there's a problem, but they feel uncomfortable doing it. And I'm always like, well, you know, I, there's nothing that's been successful that hasn't been uncomfortable. But I always challenge people that if you really think there's a problem, then you, you need to act like there's a problem. If you're not part of the solution, you're part of the problem, rather. Mm -hmm, right. And so a lot of times people are just not willing to put themselves out there. They're not willing to make mistakes, not willing to be uncomfortable. They're not willing to be seen as um, uh, problematic, uh, the, the reason for failure. And so it's such a public thing. And we live in a very um, potentially toxic world sometimes where it's... Yeah. You know, call things out sometimes so people are afraid of these things but you know so how do we how do we get around that because it, it, very real particularly in the united states right there is a social um movement or 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 feeling vibe in the air that that i think is 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 not not helping us get where mm. we need to be especially in the workplace how do we balance that those external forces with um you know make, making sure that we we have a workspace that is you know, inclusive, diverse, um, in a positive place for everybody to be. Yeah. You know, I think one of the things that we need to work is we need to start creating room for growth. Um, that, that that's, you know, th there are certainly moments where many people make mistakes, but a lot of times I found that the, the, <laughs> we don't have a lot of rehabilitation, <laughs> um, set up where, right. you know, if even, but if whatever to prison or any of these things, it's like, there is no, room for growth that that this goes back to being intentional leaders um and everyone in the company as we're training for diverse inclusion we need to also train for that where we say okay obviously no one's perfect we're all going to make mistakes we've all made mistakes what can we do to then have a path of growth there has to be some way where we can say okay i'm learning these are the steps that i need to take and i'm going to do better because uh, and that has to be said out loud too because uh, you know I, I, there's the, then the problem with social media sometimes is that what can be a vocal minority can end up affecting people's psyche in a, in a detrimental way where they don't do anything anymore. Right. So how can you uh, find allies and people in marginalized group working together? And then that's where I exist, where I, I find myself, um, you know, having had a lot of negative things said about me in terms of like microaggressions and, and um, stereotypical things. But I, I also find myself, in a position where um, I've been able to get through some people and I've been able to, to work with them and then um, it's, got, it's gotten better. But there has to be a, a willingness to lose one's ego on both sides. And that's tough. I mean, but it has to be, I, that's the first step because it, some people are just addicted to um, uh, making sure that they tear people down. And some people are um, addicted to their ego and they don't want to admit that they did something wrong. And so <laughs> it has to be in the middle. And there's no one size fit all answers. But whenever I teach and I train people, I, I, I often put that caveat there, like, this is going to be hard. This is going to be difficult. 
Many of you will be frustrated. Many of you will see people in a different light. But one thing I want you all to commit is that if you do see a glimpse of hope or potential for growth, don't curtail it because that is what's going to derail the whole thing. And, and that has to be said at every level. So that's what I think. And it's not immediately transferable because every company culture is different. Yeah, Tyler, this, this has been an amazing conversation and we just have very much appreciated your insights. Uh, as, as we wrap up the episode here, I just wanted to talk a little bit about your, your mission to reach 3 billion global leaders. I mean, that's yeah. a, a hefty goal and, and I, I, I am right there with you, but... Give us, I love give the butt. <laughs> because but. that, that's what keeps me up. No, this is good. I love it. That's what keeps me up. I, I, I should say yes and. No. <laughs> yes and. And. Here's the deal. Here's the deal. Um, give us the think, deal is what I was just going to ask. Like, what, what's, uh, what's the big takeaway here as we close the episode? Well, well I, feel, I feel like we need to set goals. Everybody needs to set goals that allow them to grow into the person that can achieve them. And so even if I don't achieve this $3 billion goal, I'm not going to stop doing it until I get to my deathbed. Now, with $3 billion, the number is pretty tangible. There are about $3 billion or so people under 30 in today's world. And we have about, you know, maybe even more than that. And so that's the next generation of global leaders. And so for me, I want to be able to impact um, that crowd across all continents. And, and that involves me being consistent with my message and partnerships and things like that. And so when I put it out there, it's something I want to achieve, but I, I also want to achieve that through activating other change makers to do what they do in their community, because I'm not going to be everywhere at the same time, but you know, we, we live in a culture and a time that's de defined by fear now um, and ignorance. And a lot of what I want to encourage people to do is to get to a place where they're curious and they are interested in self-growth as well as um, the development of the neighbors. That's why I say use your difference to make a difference. It's as much a call, a personal call to, 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 uh, to action as it is a celebration of the differences around you. We've sort of seen differences, whether it's religion, um, race, kind, uh, creed, orientation as, as something that's, um, uh, that we can other. We've created that culture. Uh, we've sort of put a blame culture around that. Not everyone has, obviously, but a lot of people have. And we've created institutions based on these fears. And I want us to be able to think uh, much better. I want us to be reflective instead of reactive. And I think uh, social media creates, it's as, I, as much as we, we can talk about how bad it is, I think it creates a great tool for us to, to do good things and to connect. But we have to be willing to take the extra step uh, to reflect on what we tweet and what we post and what we write and what we perpetuate. And then we'll also have to do the most important thing, which is start with ourselves. Many of us are quick to point out what's wrong with others and we forget, and we forget to, to um, you know, realize how we could grow. And, uh, and if we don't acknowledge that we've all played a role into what the world looks like today, it's just going to be a consistent cycle of blame culture. So I'm hoping that people start from uh, the point of being reflective and then and they take that and translate that to action. Mm, a very refreshing message. And thank you so much, Tayo, for joining us on the show. Listeners, you can learn more about Tayo at tayoroxon.com. That is T-A-Y-O-R-O-C-K-S-O-N.com. Go ahead and pre-order his book on Amazon. We are uh, super excited about it. And thank you so much for joining us on the show today. 
Oh, thank you so much. The pleasure is mine. I really appreciate all the kind uh, words and, and the thoughtful questions. Thanks for being here. Take care.